That's the trailer for season one of the Netflix series, The Crown. It takes a look at the royal family of England through the lens of the life of Queen Elizabeth. And early on in uh, season one, her father, the King of England, dies. She is crowned uh, the new queen. And, and then you take a look at the family dynamics that go along. I mean, family dynamics are hard enough, but then when you kind of layer royalty on top of that, things get complicated in a hurry. And so you hear Queen Elizabeth's husband, Philip, toward the end of that scene asking, what kind of family is this? What kind of family is this? As we get started today, my hope is there's a lot of uh, people who are maybe new to this church, checking out this church, and maybe you have a similar question. What kind of a church is this? What kind of family is this church family? So I wanted to take a little bit of time at the beginning of the message just to uh, talk about that. We're in the middle of a theme this year. It's uh, on a mission from God is our theme. We're taking all 12 months of 2018 to focus in on this mission that's kind of been guiding us for the last two plus decades now. The mission is on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. Reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And it happens in all kinds of ways. Sometimes people will ask me, how is it that hope is growing? Because there are a lot of churches in America that simply are not growing. Where's this growth coming from? How do you explain it? And the primary answer is it's a God thing. Uh, we don't exactly know why God has decided to bless this church with all kinds of growth, both deep and wide. But when you look at the different layers to how we might answer that question, one of the answers is you. You're, you're the reason this church is growing. You're carrying out this mission. When I talk to people, how did you find out about hope? How did you end up here? Often they will say, I was invited by someone at, at, um, at school, at, in our neighborhood, uh, at work. We were having a conversation, may, maybe sharing some struggles that, that we were going through. And someone said, you should come check out Hope. You should, you should just come and see. And so you did, and you started worshiping, and you got connected in classes, maybe started serving on a ministry team, and now maybe you are one of those people who reaches out and says, you should just come and see, come check out Hope. Reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. It happens through our local mission efforts. Hopefully you noticed on the way in today, we're gathering food. It's the Super Bowl food drive. It's a big weekend at Hope at all six of our campuses. We hope to collect enough food to be able to stock the shelves of a whole bunch of food pantries in central Iowa, mostly in Polk County, but some in Dallas County, some in Story County now. The reason we do it is because Jesus in Matthew 25 says, whenever you feed someone who is hungry... It's like you're feeding me. It's like you're loving Jesus. And so that's why we do it. It's a way of reaching out and sharing the love of Jesus. We understand hardly anybody who receives the food that we'll be distributing from this food drive, hardly any of those people will ever step foot inside one of Hope's campuses. But that's not really the point. The point is to reach out and to share the love of Jesus and trust that God will kind of take care of the details and, and, and what to do with that. On Wednesday, this room that Worship Center we're sitting in, we're going to clear all the chairs out of it, and we're going to partner with our local mission partner, Meals from the Heartland, to have a meal packaging event. This Worship Center will be set up as a uh, 
a meal packaging center. And so uh, during Power Life, our ministry to middle school students, and Ignition, our ministry to high school students, they'll be taking an hour shift packaging meals. We also have other shifts available that you can sign up for, and we need people to help get everything ready and make sure we have the supplies we need, that sort of thing. If you'd like to volunteer that way, it's a way we reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. We do it in all sorts of ways, including throwing a party for little girls and their dads. And that's so after we have a meal packaging event here on uh, Wednesday, now we've got to clean everything up to prepare for the daddy-daughter dance. And again, just to be clear, it's not like we think every little girl loves to get dressed up and dance with her embarrassing father and their dad moves. We know they probably don't actually enjoy that, but I'm stretching out, getting ready. Why do we do it? We do it so that kids know, girls know, their lives matter. Uh, they, they, they have value, they have worth and that they grow up to be young women who know they have a contribution to make and a contribution we need. Reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is the kind of family we are. At least it's the kind of family we want to be. We are not perfect. We have a long way to go. If you're, if you're looking for the perfect church, there's several other churches up and down 36th Street. Maybe one of them are perfect. Actually, I know those pastors pretty well. None of them would say their church is perfect. The church is not perfect. Uh, we know where we're going, and we know it's going to be a struggle until we arrive. We know where we're going, and we know it's going to be a struggle until we arrive. We know it's going to be a struggle because we're in a long line of families, men and women, sons and daughters, marriages that struggle. Over the course of this series, we've been taking a look at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And if you look at the final 38 chapters of Genesis, it's all about the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you were to ask, what kind of family is this? The family we read about in the last 38 chapters of Genesis, one of the ways to answer that question would be to say, this is a family that knows the struggle is real. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they struggle to have children. Uh, we've been talking about that pretty much every week. God promises that they're going to be parents, and then they have to wait for 25 years. And in the meantime, they lose patience, and they try other plans. So one of their plans is for Abraham to have a relationship with Sarah's servant, a woman named Hagar. She becomes pregnant, gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And life is a struggle for Hagar and Ishmael. They suffer greatly as a result of what's going on in that family system. Uh, this causes a whole lot of tension and struggle, as you can imagine, in the marriage between Abraham and Sarah. Eventually, they are able to have their own child. They have, after this 25-year struggle with infertility, they give birth to a son. Well, she gives birth to a son. They name him Isaac. And when Isaac grows up, he gets married to a woman named Rebecca, and the two of them struggle with infertility. So Isaac is praying one time for his wife to be able to have children, and here's what happens after his prayer. Rebecca became pregnant with twins. The two children struggled with each other in her womb. They struggled with each other in her womb, and then after they are born, they continue this sort of ongoing power struggle for their entire lives. The struggle is real. What kind of family is this? It's a family that understands that. It's also a family that has a pattern of playing favorites. So Abraham has two boys through two different women. He favors Isaac over uh, Ishmael. 
Isaac grows up, the favored one grows up. When he becomes a father, he favors one of his sons over the other one. Here's how the Bible describes it. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now remember, they're twins, but Esau is born first. Jacob was almost there. We're told he's born holding on to the heel of his brother Esau when he's delivered. And so they name him Jacob because that sounds like the Hebrew word for heel. It also sounds like the Hebrew word for deceive. It's a family that knows the struggle is real. It's a family with a pattern of playing favorites. And it's a family with a pattern of deception. And we see the deception play out in lots of different places in the story. One of the places is in chapter 26. Isaac and Rebekah have to leave their home because there's a famine. They end up in the land of the Philistines. But Isaac says to Rebekah, you have to pretend to be my sister. Because if they find out we're married. If they find out you're my wife, they will kill me so they can marry you. So Isaac pretends. Isaac deceives, but eventually his deceit is found out. The king of the Philistines, a guy named Abimelech, says to Isaac, how could you do this to us? Not, not just how could you do this to us, but like, how did you even come up with this idea? How do you, how do you come up with an idea of having your wife pretend to be your sister? Well, he learned it from his father. In chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah, almost the exact story happens. Instead of going to the land of the Philistines, they go to Egypt, and Abraham says to Sarah, you've got to pretend to be my sister. So Abraham practices deceit, and then his son Isaac practices deceit, and then Isaac has a son, and he names him <laughs> deceit. The struggle is real. This power struggle that Jacob and Esau are in is because in that culture, the firstborn son gets all the power, gets the birthright, gets the inheritance. Everything goes to the firstborn son. And so Jacob spends a great deal of time, effort, energy in his life trying to get what his brother has. And he uses deception to do it. Tricks his brother into selling him his birthright at one point. In our Bible reading for today, uh, they... they his mom and Jacob work together to trick Isaac into giving the blessing that's supposed to go to the firstborn son, but they trick Isaac to give it to Jacob instead. And what we didn't read about in our Bible reading is that primarily it was Jacob's mom's idea. Rebecca's the one who comes up with this idea, here's how we can get Isaac, her husband, to give to her favorite child what belongs to the other child. Think about how messed up that is. And so they, they cover Jacob with goat skin, I think is what it says, because so, Esau's a really hairy guy, and so they're trying to trick Isaac, so they cover him with hair. They put on Esau's clothes so that he smells like his brother, and they do this to trick their father and to take something from her son, his brother. It is messed up in all sorts of ways, and it absolutely devastates the family system. Genesis 27, verse 41, here's what happens after the deception. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But Rebekah heard about Esau's plan, so she sent for Jacob and told him, Listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you, so listen carefully, my son. Get ready and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you have done to him, 
Remember, this is Rebecca who came up with the whole plan saying, when he forgets what you have done to him, I'll send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day? She understands, she knows, she believes what she has done has essentially killed her relationship with Esau. Now she's hoping that it will not end up in physically killing her favored son, Jacob. Struggle is real. So she sends Jacob away. I'll let you know when your brother cools off, but that doesn't happen while she's alive. 20 years later, after Rebekah has died, Jacob is in a struggle with his father-in-law. And so he decides, we're just going to pack up and, and come back home. He's got two wives at this point, 11 sons, a whole bunch of cattle and donkeys and flocks of goats and sheep, and they head back to the place where he grew up. And along the way, word comes, his brother Esau is coming toward him, and Esau's got a whole bunch of people with him, and Jacob's scared. He thinks his brother probably still wants to kill him even after 20 years. So he sends a bunch of gifts ahead, hoping that will maybe appease his brother's anger. And then Jacob hits his knees, and he prays like he has never prayed before in his life. And this really strange thing happens while he's praying. A man shows up, and the Bible is really kind of, doesn't give us a whole lot of, where's the man come from? Who is this man? It doesn't say. It's just kind of this mystery man. How does he know where Jacob is? We don't know. But Jacob and this man, again, why? I don't know. They start to wrestle, and they wrestle all night long. Early the next morning when the new day is about to break, the man is done wrestling. He wants to leave. Jacob grabs a hold of him just like he grabbed a hold of his brother's heel when he was born. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. And part of the blessing that this mystery man gives to Jacob is to say, I'm changing your name. I'm changing your name from Jacob to Israel. Israel, a Hebrew word which means to contend with, to wrestle with, to fight with, to struggle with God. Prophet Hosea sums up Jacob's life by writing this. Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. When he became a man, he even fought with God. So there's a whole lot of family history that you may or may not care about at all. Why are we talking about it? Here's what I want you to think about. The primary way God introduces himself throughout the pages of the Old Testament God's introducing himself to people. He says, this is who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Flawed men married to flawed women, having flawed children, creating these dysfunctional family patterns that get passed down from generation to generation that almost destroy the family. And God says, those are my people. You alone of all the nations on the earth have I chosen. You're my people. I'm giving you my name. And what name does God give them? Israel, which means to wrestle, to contend, to fight, to struggle with God. What kind of family is this? By putting the name Israel on this family, God's saying, this is a family that knows the struggle is real, and this is a family that knows God is with them in the struggle. Now let me ask you this. We go through the story of this family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this family that struggles. Do you see any connecting points between that family and your family? Any ongoing struggles in your family? 
any sort of unhealthy relational patterns that get passed down from generation to generation? Any behaviors or characteristics in your family that aren't all that helpful? About 500 years after Jacob wrestles with this mystery man, his family, the nation of Israel, is in the middle of the Exodus on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, and Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai getting the commandments, uh, the instructions, the law that says, here's how you live together in this family. This is, this, this is the description of what kind of family this is. Here's part of what God says to Moses up on top of Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, verse 7. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations. It's verses like this, other verses in the Old Testament, theologians point to when they talk about this idea of generational curses. I don't know if you noticed it in, uh, throughout the story of this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the language of blessing and cursing gets used all the time. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. When Rebecca goes to Jacob and says, here's how we can trick Isaac into giving you the blessing, Jacob's like, I don't know if I want it. I don't, what if dad doesn't believe? What if he figures it out? Then he's going to curse me instead of blessing me. So we got this language of generational curses or this, this idea of blessings and, and curses. It shows up in Exodus 34. If you look at this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can kind of see where it comes from. You can see these generational patterns of unhealth. And so if you want to call that generational cursing, I guess, okay. What about your family? What about when you take a close look at, at your family tree? Do you see something similar? If you don't, maybe there's someone close to you who could help you see it. I got a podcast this week. Uh, a friend of mine here at Hope sent it uh, to me. And part of what they were talking about in the podcast was something called bias blind spot. Bias, we're all biased, right? I'm biased. You're biased. We are all this unique mixture of our relationships, our circumstances, our personalities, and everyone is unique. Mine is unique from yours. We're all biased. And what biased blind spot means, it's a whole lot easier for me to see your bias than it is for me to see my own bias. So if you have trouble picking out some dysfunction in your family tree, ask someone who doesn't have your bias, what do they see? Generational curses. I don't know about you. I don't really like this verse. And what am I supposed to do with this? Are you kidding me? I mean, I, it doesn't seem fair to me at all. Why should children and grandchildren have to suffer because of something the parents or the grandparents did? And then you mix religion with it. You mix God in with this. this God says, I lay the sins of the parents upon the children and grandchildren. I don't know if I like a God who does that. It doesn't seem good, kind, loving. So what do we do? Do we just, let's never preach on this again. Let's rip that page out of your Bible. We'll just, what do we, if we're going to talk about Exodus 34 verse 7 and generational curses, we also have to talk about individual reward and retribution, which shows up throughout the Old Testament as well. One of the places it shows up is in Ezekiel chapter 18. When the prophet Ezekiel is doing his thing, the nation of Israel is really struggling. And so God speaks to them through the prophet, and here's part of God's message to them. 
Why, why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. See, see what has happened is this idea of generational curses has so permeated the culture that everyone believes if anything bad is happening in my life, it's mom and dad's fault. It's grandpa and grandma's fault. And so they create this language around it to try to explain it. Mom and dad do something, they eat sour grapes, but we get the bitter taste. Children get the bitter taste. This is, this is the language of generational curses. But notice what God is asking in Ezekiel 18. Why are you quoting this proverb? The very next verse, God says, I don't want you to ever quote this proverb again. And he goes on to, to point out that theologians call it individual reward and retribution. He's like, if you, if an individual person sins, you will die. And if you are good, you will live. He's trying to say, take some responsibility for your life. Yes, things have happened in your life. Yes, there are circumstances. Yes, you're a part of a system. But that's not your fault. What is your responsibility is your life. Take responsibility for it. Take ownership of your life and your actions and your behaviors. Individual reward and retribution. Now, if people are paying attention, and particularly if they don't want to believe Scripture, this is one of those places where someone might say, ah, doesn't this seem to be the Bible contradicting itself? And if the Bible contradicts itself, why would I ever want to read or trust or believe anything in the Bible? I mean, which one is it? Is it generational curses? Does God lay the sins of the parents on the children and the grandchildren? Or is it individual reward and retribution? And of course, the answer is it's both. I mean, look, look at this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They have this unhealthy family pattern of playing favorites. So Abraham picks Isaac over Ishmael. He's got a favorite son. Does that mean Isaac, when he becomes a father, he is like doomed, cursed, forced to pick favorites when he has children? He has no option. He has no choice. It just, it's going to happen? No, of course not. What generational curses means is Isaac has one primary role model example for how to be a parent. It's his father Abraham, and he learns from his father. And one of the things he, he discovers as he watches how his dad lives is, oh, this is what fathers do. This is what parents do. They pick favorites. That was his model. That was his example. And so it would have been a struggle for Isaac to grow up and become a father who did not also pick favorites. It would have been a struggle, but it would not have been impossible. This is, this is God saying, this is just how life works. There's these realities that we are born into and that we live with, and if we don't pay attention to them, we're just going to keep repeating the cycle. But if we pay attention to it, if we start to take notice of the things that are not good, are, are not healthy, and we try to live a new kind of way, then there's this reality of individual reward and retribution. We're not doomed to repeat the past. This is, this is the reality of all of our lives. All of life is a struggle. And here's the hope of all of our lives. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who comes and who lives as part of a family system and he lives in such a way that he breaks the curse. 
He breaks the curse of sin and death, and he promises the Holy Spirit, this gift of the Holy Spirit, which can lead us and guide us and fill us and empower us so that with Jesus as our example, with Jesus as our model, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can live a whole new kind of life. But the struggle is real. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he's helping the church kind of figure out, now how do we live together as God's people? How do we live together as the family of God? And Paul spends a great deal of time talking about the difference between living according to our sinful nature compared to living by the Spirit's power. Galatians chapter 5 is one of the places where he talks about this difference. When, when we're living by our sinful nature, it leads in one kind of direction, and it leads to all kinds of things that are not good, not good for us, not good for the people around us. On the other hand, he says, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and your life will start to be characterized by what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, more and more of that kind of stuff all the time. But there's this warning that he gives us. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. Our sinful nature and the life of the Spirit are constantly fighting, constantly wrestling, constantly struggling for control of our lives. The struggle is real. After Elizabeth is crowned queen, she starts to feel the weight of the crown, the, the weight of her position as the queen. And one of the things that happens pretty shortly after that is her sister Margaret falls in love and wants to marry a guy that it's not okay for her to marry, that the establishment is frowning upon, that there's a protocol that says, no, you're not allowed to marry this person. And so Elizabeth is in a dilemma. As the queen, she wants to do kind of everything that's associated with the kingdom. But as a sister, she wants to do something that helps and loves her sister. What's she going to do? So she calls up her uncle, <laughs> her uncle Edward, who used to be the king. But he gave up. He abducted the throne because he fell in love with a divorced American woman. And he chose to marry her rather than wear the crown. She's living in France. She calls him up. And as you listen to this phone call, I want you to keep Galatians 5 in the back of your head. I want you to keep Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the back of your head. I want you to keep this idea of generational curses, individual reward and responsibility. Who are we? How do we live? How do we relate to one another? Where does God fit into all of this? Take a look. Just to satisfy someone 
Will I let this woman kill me or do away with jealous love? Will it wash out in the water or is it all based in the blood? And I can't feel the love I want. I can't feel the love I need, but it's never gonna come the way I am. Could I chase it if I want it? Could I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Is it always in the blood? How much like my brother? my brothers want to be does a broken home become another broken family will we be there for each other like nobody ever could will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood I can't feel the love I want I can't feel the love I need but it's Never gonna come the way I am. Could I change it if I wanted? Could I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Is it always in the blood? kind of family is this? What kind of church is this? Our Lutheran Church of Hope. John Mayer wrote that song uh, because I think he was reading Genesis chapters 12 to 50. No, probably not. Because hope is a universal longing. It, it's part of our humanity. Deep inside us there's this hope for transformation, this hope that things can change, that things can get better. And so I think sometimes we start talking about generational curses. There's this tendency for parents and grandparents to get all loaded up with guilt. And like, like Rebecca thinking, I killed my relationship with my son and it's over and there's no hope. No, we gather at the Lord's table to remind ourselves there's hope. We look to the cross and we look to the empty tomb. 
And we know it's never too late in God's economy. It's never too late. There's always hope.